2: Hi there and welcome to the Explaining History podcast and today I'm going to look at the defense plans for India in 1939 at the start of the Second World War. And I'm looking at Srinath Raghavan's uh, India's War: The Making of Modern South Asia 1939 to uh, 45. Uh, an excellent read I've uh, referred to this before. And it's a book that shows how the, 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 the narrative history of independence and the narrative history of uh, India's Second World War um, intersect, which is of course they do. But there are there a few titles other than perhaps Forgotten Armies and Forgotten Wars by Tim Harper and Christopher Bailey that do it as effectively as this. So in September 1939, not only was the Indian Army underprepared for war, But there had been precious little um, meaningful work gone into India's defence policy. There were uh, competing and conflicting policies. And the British Empire in general was experiencing acute imperial overstretch. There were uh, not the finances, the resources or the manpower uh, to go around the generation of officers that had survived the First World War uh, were not of the calibre in the interwar years that their predecessors had been. Probably a great many of the more talented ones had died uh, during during the war. And uh, as a result, in the hill stations of India, there were very many um, army officers, bureaucrats and imperial planners who were of the the time-serving variety, who like the uh, whiskey, soda, stengers, and long afternoons in um, remote, uh, remote circumstances, um, and the this did not was not conducive to a, a robust imperial defence. So, Srinath Rangavan writes: In September nineteen thirty nine, the two hundred thousand strong Indian army was subject to three competing claims: those of internal security, external defence, and imperial duties. This had been the case for nearly half a century. Since the rebellion of 1857, internal security had been a central concern of military policy in India. In 1881, the government of India claimed that the Indian army is required to maintain internal tranquility rather than for employment against external foes. As late as 1912, an army in India committee, led by Field Marshal Nicholson, had identified the principal mission of the army as maintaining internal security and tranquility. Although internal security took a back seat during the First World War, it soon returned to the fore. From 1917 to the early 1920s, there were um, numerous and repeated uprisings uh, from Burma to the Punjab um, all the way to Malabar. Um, There was the, the development across India of a mass popular nationalism. The uh, ingredients for the development of India as um, a, a nation state, or a, a series of nation states, were there, and the First World War had been the crucible in which these passions had been intensified and, that had, and had been articulated uh, in clear uh, political outcomes. And this meant that the British were facing much more significant problems in India than they had ever faced before. And it also meant that there was more likely to be intercommunal tensions and riots as competing nationalisms interacted. A demonstration of of this problem was that along the northwest frontier, just prior to the start of the Second World War, the Indian Army was involved in putting down uh, a revolt. So right on the eve of uh, involvement in war with Nazi Germany, there were internal, uh, separatist, nationalist, um, tribal uh, politics resulting in insurrection and unrest. And it was from the uh, mid nineteenth century up until the the mid twentieth uh, century, well, until nineteen thirty nine, at any rate, that um, planners, uh, military planners, saw the threat to India coming from this region. This was the era of the the Great Game, um, in which uh, Russia and Britain fought one another in a fairly futile and fruitless espionage war uh, along the northwest frontier into Afghanistan and into Persia and it was uh, thought that this might be the the place for a, a Russian invasion of India um, this period um, from the eight, late 1870s onwards really uh, the British Raj was um, obsessed with the idea that Russia that had been developing and growing its, expanding its borders throughout the 19th century might expand southwards in in large part, this was was fantasy. An invasion of India was such a vast logistical undertaking that the uh, Russian government was deeply unprepared for and incapable of. And the uh, geographical challenges of crossing to Afghanistan were so huge uh, that it was um, really almost a, a figment of um, the British imagination it was certainly the stuff that made spy writers of the period uh, very successful. Um, The uh, era of um, the great game was um, one in which commanders-in-chief of the forces in India, uh, including Kitchener for example, created um, something of a fantasy narrative. Um, The Signing of uh, an alliance between Russia and Britain in 1907 didn't really dissipate um, fantasies that, or fears or anxieties that the British had that India might be um, uh, threatened by Russia. Um, and it was even during the period of the Russian Revolution when um Russia ceases to be a functioning state in the the world system, and certainly ceases to be capable of projecting power beyond its borders in any meaningful way. That the British still um, believe that Russia was the, the key threat. I think there was obviously the the fear as well that dangerous subversive ideas might cross through Afghanistan into India. Of course, those dangerous subversive ideas were already there in the guise of the various uh, communist thinkers and intellectuals who had gone to form the Communist Party of India. So, because of the Nazi-Soviet Pact of August 1939, the fears of a Soviet invasion of India are dramatically revived. By 1939, the British are looking at Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union as coming as a package deal. The British proposed to uh, prevent an invasion of India uh, by meeting any uh, Soviet army crossing to Afghanistan, actually in Afghanistan itself, to uh, draw the line uh, between Kabul and Kandahar. The Indian army had been Britain's secret weapon in East Africa, the Middle East and Asia. Uh, since the uh, 19th century, and certainly during the First World War. During the First World War, 1.4 million Indian soldiers served Britain on the Western Front, in North Africa, in Egypt, in Palestine, in Mesopotamia, and, uh, and beyond, uh, even serving in China. And the um, power that the Indian army uh, represented uh, was not to be uh, kind of underestimated, it was a key part of the maintenance of the of the British Empire. So to quote from Raghavan again, the imperial commitments of the Indian Army were altogether more contentious. In the nineteenth century, India was the central strategic reservoir of the British Empire and was crucial to securing imperial interests throughout Asia and large patches of Africa. As popular paradis put it, we don't want to fight but by jingo if we do. We won't go to the front of ourselves, but we'll send the mild Hindu. During the First World War, India's imperial commitments bloated enormously. The Raj supplied almost 1.5 million troops, and nearly three quarters of whom served in the Middle East. In 1920, Indian troops were still stationed in Iraq and Egypt, Palestine and the Persian Gulf, Aden and Cyprus, Burma and Malaya, North China and Hong Kong. India's subsequent unwillingness to provide troops on tap has led some historians to conclude that the government of India was not solicitous of imperial interests in the interwar years. This is misleading, for it overlooks the fact that the Raj discerned a range of interests of its own, not least strategic, in most of these parts. After all, they consist- constituted the informal, em- uh, the informal empire of the Raj. The central concern of the managers of this sub imperial system. Mirrored that of the larger empire. How to work their system on the cheap. So that's an interesting point, that there appears to have been a sub-empire existing within the British Empire, the Empire of the Raj, which perhaps stretched from Egypt all the way through to Hong Kong. Um, And this was the, you could think of it as, as the eastern portion of the British Empire, or the, um, uh, the, the the sort of the largely colonial non dominion part of the the British Empire uh, that is run from India, um, it's ultimately obviously uh, run from London, but from Delhi, it's possible to deploy troops to put down uprisings in Malaya or Burma or Egypt. Um, or uh, wherever they're they're needed and uh, an entire system of um, economic management military management, diplomatic management of this eastern part of the empire runs fairly autonomously from Delhi how this would be paid for was always an interesting matter Um, so Rangavan writes the wrangling between India and Britain over the question of financing the external ventures of the Indian army have been carried on since the 1870s. In 1902, the Indian government had accepted the suggestion of the Royal Commission that it should bear financial responsibility for areas which contained its direct and substantial interests. Uh, these included the Suez Canal, Persia, the Persian Gulf, and Afghanistan. During the 1914-18 war, India not only bore a substantial cost in raising and deploying troops, but also made a generous gift to Britain by taking over some of its war debts worth £100 million. Which unfortunately a drop in the ocean, really. Um, India, as the viceroy put it, was bled absolutely white by the war. But this also means that from the, the point of view of um, Indian military officers, of Indian members of the Congress party, that India was effectively operating as its own regional great power. <music> And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Whilst also being a colony of Great Britain, and this is uh, sort of something that is irreconcilable. This is um, a uh, something that really can only eventually be reconciled by a change in India's status, either to dominion or to being a uh, an independent state. The uh, economic crises of the interwar years, particularly in the 1920s, uh, present a, a significant problem for the British Empire. No longer is there a pliant and cooperative India willing to become involved in the ventures of um, the the British Empire, but there is a uh, country that is far less willing to become involved in uh, assuming wider commitments. Um, The government of India that was staffed by British mandarins, by and large, was responsible for the management of the the budget of that, that government and couldn't simply justify doing things because Westminster would like it. There were um, uh, British uh, administrators uh, administrators to the Viceroy in India, along with uh, Indian uh, politicians, businessmen, army uh, men and uh, Indian officials who saw um, the expense to which uh, India would have been put had Westminster had its way as being uh, unacceptable. So there is this very interesting and perhaps sort of understated uh, financial schism within the British Empire. And it's really one of the things that you see emerging in empires from time to time which uh, foretells their, their dissolution. What Indian officials were most keen to avoid was providing troops to permanently garrison bases across the empire. So there were um, agreements that uh, emergency troops could be sent to uh, Iraq, to um, the Persian oil fields, Singapore and to Shanghai, but that uh, the British would share the bill, um, and that the, uh, once the crisis was over, Indian troops would be able to return to India. Now, in 1919, when the Montague-Chelmsford uh, reforms were passed, granting India a legislative assembly, the assembly had no powers to uh, decide on matters of defence uh, because that was considered to be an imperial matter. And, but they did have powers to decide on taxation, and this gave them uh, an opportunity to veto some of the more onerous military commitments that India was likely to be put to. However, in 1921, uh, the British uh, government uh, argued that the Indian army should be placed directly under British control, so it should be passed through to the control of the British government. Um, The uh, Legislative Assembly obviously said this was uh, a terrible idea, uh, and that the Indian army should not be used outside of India. Um, it shouldn't be a kind of a, a, a regional bulldog for the British Empire in Asia. Um, the, in 1938, um, London put pressure on the uh, Viceroy in New Delhi to provide a reserve division for the British Empire, but that the cost be met by India. And the reason why the cost was to be passed on to India is this is the 1930s, this is a period of economic retrenchment and cutbacks um, and that uh, any government that can find ways to keep costs off the balance sheet and to pass them on to somebody else is going to try to take that option. Uh, The Treasury was told, whatever the legal position might be, We are under a moral obligation to consult the legislature in the event of a situation arising which rendered desirable the dispatch of troops from India to some other theatre of operations and anyone who thought otherwise was living in a wholly unreal world. That's a very telling comment, a wholly unreal world. The, uh, The Viceroy is essentially telling the British government that you are fantasists if you think that you can simply tell uh, the Indian Army, what to do and where to go um, to leave India to put down a revolt in the Middle East or something like that, and that that will not um, cause you significant problems, of course it will, which is ironic because a year later the South same viceroy Viceroy Bakbun Lord Linlithgow, takes India to war without the consultation of um, the Congress Party uh, or any other of the main political players in India uh, whatsoever. By 1935 the change in the world situation was becoming abundantly clear, particularly with the rise of Japan as a, a belligerent or potential belligerent to the east. Japan's um, gradual um, bit by bit uh, piecemeal colonisation of China was starting to show um, that uh, show sort of Japanese intentions in Asia, and in 1932, the Chief of Staff warned the Committee, committee of Imperial Defence that a war with Japan would um, place Britain's colonies in the Far East, Hong Kong and Singapore, in in uh, direct uh, peril. These were very lightly defended. And um, the imperial defences had been organised around Singapore for some time. There was a podcast, that, unfortunately it was years ago, but if there's a search function, have a look for it, on the Singapore strategy. Um, I'll talk a bit about that in, in a moment. Um, the If Singapore fell, then the coastline of India would be badly exposed, as would be Australia. Um, when Yamashita, the Japanese general, seized Singapore in 1942, he said it was the, the centre of the fan, I think the pin at the centre of the fan of the British Empire. You take that out and the rest of the British Empire in Asia falls apart. Um, the whole point of the Singapore strategy was to create a, an impregnable naval base there um, and to sail um, a, a fleet from Singapore to blockade Japan and to bring Japan to its knees using the, same, the kind of strategies that brought Germany to its knees navally during the First World War to starve Japan into submission. It only really takes the Japanese to cross down the Malay Peninsula for that one not to work very well, as subsequently happened. The uh, strategy rested on the assumption that the Royal Navy would not have commitments in Europe. That it would not also be a European war. So um, when the uh, both Hitler and Mussolini are belligerents in Europe, that strategy also kind of fall, falls apart. So um, when the um, invasion of Abyssinia in 1935 occurred and then Hitler's reoccupi- reoccupation of the Rhineland happened, um, Hitler's inven- intervention in uh, Spain put uh, Europe on notice that there could potentially be... Uh, a war emerging there. The uh, idea of there being a a peaceful and secure Europe falls apart at the same time that there is potentially um, a war in Asia. Um, Arangavan writes, all this drastically and rapidly changed the context in which India's imperial role was considered. Italy could threaten imperial communications through the Mediterranean and the Red Sea, while Japan could menace imperial interests in the Far East and endanger India's coastline and shipping in the Indian Ocean. In consequence, the scope of India's external defence expanded to include the areas stretching from Suez, Aden and the Persian Gulf um, in the west to Singapore in the east. An expert committee under Admiral Chatfield stamped its approval on this. India should acknowledge that her responsibility cannot, on her own interest, be safely limited to the local defense of her land frontiers and coasts so the thing the, the point that the British thought they were going to make to India is that it was irresponsible of India to not take on this strategic sphere from Suez to uh, China and Um, the reason for that was not only would it affect the British Empire, but it would affect Indian security itself, that India's security began at the Suez Canal and ended at Hong Kong. Now, this might be the case, but it was a, a rather expedient way of getting India to do most of the heavy lifting in Asia. In London, there were military planners and strategists looking at a a whole variety of different combinations of events and trying to second guess what might happen in the future. And in Delhi, there was um, the demands of internal security, uh, making sure rebellions and uprisings didn't happen, Um, the demands of keeping an eye on the northwest frontier, and perhaps engaging a land war in Afghanistan with the USSR, And also the demands of keeping this uh, gigantic crescent from uh, Suez to Hong Kong um, secure all um, a vast undertaking and one which the British wanted to pay for as little as was possible and to put the financial burden uh, onto India. And by 1942 at least two of these scenarios, internal uprisings in India and this broad strategic theatre from the Middle East um, to um, Southeast Asia has fallen to um, India uh, to grapple with. So uh, India's war was uh, extremely, extremely demanding on India. But uh, as Many historians have pointed out uh, India actually emerges from the war economically and industrially transformed and also in terms of its um, military functioning and military prowess significantly altered as well. Anyway, thanks very much for listening and I'm going to leave you there. Um, you can find out more on our patreon page check it out there's all sorts of cool stuff there and i'll put the link in the the chat box below or thingy below um all the best thanks so much Bye bye.
0: imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time